Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai John at our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Switwan, and I'm Ali Kazmi. We'd like to thank everyone for their continued support. Ali, we hit the 125,000 download mark、uh, just just this week. So we're hitting about 25,000 new listeners about every two weeks, which is awesome. And for all our new listeners, if you like the show, share it with your friends, or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Making the podcast is pure love and not profit. We pay a lot of licensing fees <laughs> to make this thing go. So if you can help us financially, we'd really appreciate it. Just go on Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash Shanghai John. Today we're talking about the evolution of the retail environment, and while we spend a lot of time, Ali, talking about e-commerce on the show, there's always going to be a place for traditional retail, especially within the fast-moving consumer goods space. And despite growth in e-commerce, a vast majority of Chinese consumers will still shop in supermarkets and hypermarkets. Recent studies have shown that nine out of ten purchase decisions in China are aided by a trip to the store. So we couldn't think of anyone better to talk about retail in China than Jason Yu. He is the managing director for Greater China of Kantar World Panel, a position that he's held、uh, since 2017. Jason, welcome to Shanghai Zhan. Thank you, guys. Thank you to have me, Jason. I think a great way to get started would be to tell our listeners, tell us about the World Panel. What is it, and how does it work? How many product categories and channels do you survey, and how often is it updated? Okay, thank you, Bryce.、Um, so, Counter World Panel is the world's leading provider of syndicated consumer research.、Uh, so, we measure consumers' purchase and、um, usage behaviors across the world. Uh, in China, we set up our panel since 1996. So already now we have, you know, 26 years of history, and we have around 100,000 consumers' families、uh, working with us, recording their fast-moving consumer goods purchases on a daily basis. So we give them an app, a mobile phone app. And they record their purchases through the app, and also they scan the product barcodes、uh, through the、um, uh, lens of the phone, so that we are able to understand what they buy, how they buy, at what price they purchase the products, and also whether they buy the product on promotion or not.、Um, we have our clients across all the different、uh, sides of the、um, uh, fast-moving consumer space, and we help our clients to understand better their brand performance. How to launch a new product, how to set a reasonable price,、um, how to monitor their performance across different trade types,、uh, setting their promotion strategies, and more importantly, you know how to optimize the, their growth. You know if they are facing some challenges. And、uh, in China, across the, the the world, we really help our clients to advise their growth strategies so that they are able to make better marketing and sales decisions to you know inspire their growth. That's incredible. You said 125,000 people in China are 
involved in the panel? Yeah, around 100,000 uh, um, families. So basically, we have a specialist panel to measure the general household goods, okay? And also panels to measure beauty care products, panels to measure baby care products, and also a specialist panel to measure consumers' uh, food and beverage purchases away from their home. So we have different panels measure different uh, product sectors. And, and really, we're covering over 100 product categories, almost all the uh, uh, CPG goods categories that you can, you can think of, you know, anything you eat and drink and use uh, for families and, and for yourself. And how does it measure e-commerce purchases? Is it the same or is it done differently than traditional retail purchases? Well, it's pretty much the same. So we ask people to select, uh, you know, which e-commerce channel they purchase the product, whether it's come from Taobao, uh, JD, or even now today, Douyin and Kuaishou, etc. And when the consumer receives the product, they scan the barcode and record all the product details um, in, in the app. So that's a similar um, methodology. And, and so in, in, in a way, we are able to actually report uh, uh, consumers' uh, omni-channel purchasing behaviors, not just online, or, but also offline and across different channels, understanding people's uh, um, different behaviors across different uh, tree type. I was going to ask a follow-up question. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, shopping, um, at least in China, um, within tier one cities happens, um, happens online. And if it happens online, then the assumption is is that a lot of that data gets captured by advertisers um, or they have access to it directly through um, the back-end systems of those e-commerce platforms. What would the benefit in this case be for working with Kantar World Panel on syndicated data versus just extrapolating or extracting that data off of a back-end system? How do you explain this to clients and what's the benefit? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, increasingly, I think in this part of the world, we are seeing that uh, a lot of our clients are collecting their first, what they call first party data. So they have either a DTC setup so that they are able to actually extract their data directly through their private domain or through their e-commerce platform. But, but in most of cases, they only get a read of their, uh, the data on their, the purchases on their own product. Um, on their own brands. They don't really know, you know how consumers buy their competitors' product. They don't really know how the consumer buy the total category so that we are able to actually provide a, the, a more holistic view about uh, the market. But more importantly, I think you know, nobody only shop online. Everybody shop online and offline. So it's really important to put things in perspective to understand you know, how people switch you know, their purchase across the different channels when they buy online, buy your product online, when they buy your product offline, so that you are not really missing any opportunities. And what product they buy on offline and online as well, that might be different. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, you know, at the beginning of the beginning phase of the e-commerce, we all see that the, the product people buy online versus people product buy offline are, are very, very different. So it's really different important to setting up a kind of differentiation strategies so that you are able to you know, know how to actually deploy the different um, product mix um, by the different uh, retail type. Jason, you've recently released the quarterly report of the World Panel for China. It's really fascinating. I know you sent a link to, to some of the top line data, which we'll share in the show notes for the listeners that they can follow up with it. Generally speaking, things 
for at least for the fast moving consumer goods market, you showed a 2.8% increase that things are increasing in terms of uh, year on year sales. Despite all the news about, you know, sales declines in China, it seems that things are improving. Could you give us some more top trends in terms of traditional retail? We'll get on to e-commerce a little bit later. I know that you separate these things up between traditional retail, e-commerce, and then we'll talk about O2O. So let's first start with traditional retail. What are some of the big things that you're seeing? Why are some offline retail proximity channels growing so much? Could you share some insights uh, with our listeners? Yeah, sure, Bryce. So traditional retail basically also consists of different types, mainly characterized by uh, modern trade. So hypermarkets, supermarkets, convenience stores, and and also, you know, mom and pop stores and um, the other general trade as well. That is the sector experiencing enormous challenges in the face of um, competition from e-commerce over the past uh, years. And, And of course, uh, with COVID, it was really, really hit uh, in terms of the, the the traffic. So consumers no longer, you know, driving or going to stores. They were worried about queuing the stores together with a lot of other people. So they got infected. So in terms of the store traffic, you know, those uh, channels are really, you know, suffering a huge amount of challenge. But this year, also partly thanks to the, to the lockdown, you know, we are also seeing a little bit bouncing back of the modern trade okay they used to actually have a, a, a kind of slight decline uh, but this year starting from q2 they report a, a, a kind of marginal increase partly because you know obviously consumers really worry they stock up and they are buying a lot of product from what do we call the more from the proximity channel which was characterized by the smaller supermarkets and convenience store uh, very close to consumers home so you walk five or ten minutes to those stores uh, so you don't really need to, you know, like spend a lot of time queuing in the checkout so that you are able to get your, you know, daily necessities, your, your basic uh, grocery product. So those channels, because they are so close to the community, they're so close to the consumer's everyday life, um, they are growing uh, very well. While we are seeing that the big guys, like the, the big hypermarkets, the big supermarkets are still kind of um, um, under a lot of uh, challenges in terms of their growth. In the study... You mentioned that Sam's Club, which of course is part of the Walmart group, increased massively, 58% increase uh, in sales in the panel. What do you count for that? It kind of stuck out and for me in, in the report that Sam's Club is doing so well. Yeah, well, Sam's Club is really interesting. It's not the usual big format store. It is actually a um, membership store. So you have to pay a fee to get access to the to the product. Many of the Chinese consumers don't really understand why I go to the supermarket. I still have to pay a thirty dollar fee or sixty dollar fee to get into the um, store and, and and be able to buy the product. So Sam's Club offer a limited range, typically four thousand to five thousand SKUs, highly differentiated. Normally you won't be able to buy the product elsewhere, and they are really relentlessly focusing on efficiency, focusing on, you know, how much sales can be generated by those limited offers. So what do we say that, you know, it's really about a principle of less is more. Uh, instead of offering, you know, vast amount of uh, product and the merchandise to the consumers, they are setting the right price at a really value offer. So their product is not the cheapest, but they guarantee, you know, you get a real uh, good value for money 
you know, on the basis of your membership fee, uh, so that they are able to actually give you a very differentiated um, uh, shopping experience. And, and not just the Sam's Club, we also see, you know, some of the other guys, especially the local retailers, are also increasingly introducing the membership store format. Even Metro, you know, uh, last month just announced that they are going to convert all the Metro stores in China into membership stores. And, and Carrefour just launched their membership st stores, and RT Mart, you know, are also introducing this format. So everybody is, uh, uh, is joining the, the competition. So it's really, really interesting to see, you know, how, how it works out in terms of the a very cluttered uh, uh, competitive space. I remember when Costco opened up in Shanghai and I was at McCann and our head of planning and I had an open form debate and she predicted that Costco would fail in China. I took the opposite argument and said that they would do very well, mainly because they do well in Taiwan. Her argument was, of course, based upon the fact that people aren't shopping at that time in hypermarkets and people are shopping online and going to proximity stores. What accounts for membership clubs doing like Costco, like Sam's Club, like RT Mart? What's accounting for the success of these membership clubs in China, given the fact that you know, you can buy anything on JD or Taobao. Costco is really a very interesting species in the way that it doesn't even offer you an, an e-commerce option. So with Sam's Club, you can actually buy Sam's Club through Jingdong Daojia or even through um, JD.com. Uh, for Costco, you can only purchase based on Daigo, right? Someone actually buy it for you in the store. So it's really, really interesting. To some extent, it's kind of stubborn in a way that it just stick to its old principle. But it's amazing, you know. Now this is the third year that since Costco opened their first store in Shanghai, they all already opened a store in Suzhou, and they are opening another store in in, in Pudong very soon. And they had their fourth and fifth. Uh, stores planned in China as well, in Shenzhen, uh, in the south of China. So it's really amazing. You know, they are able to actually uh, create uh, almost a sensation and wherever they open their store uh, with the middle class consumers. I guess to some extent, you know, obviously online shopping is very convenient, but also people love the experience of uh, treasure hunting. Yeah, being in the store, um, go to a hypermarket, see the different product, uh, touch it, um, feel it. But more importantly, of course, you know, Costco is highly kind of known for its private label, its Copland um, 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 private label. So it's really value for money and you cannot really find it anywhere else. So that is really like set it apart from um, the rest of the, um, uh, the the peer groups. I guess in China, you still have a lot of opportunity because in the U.S., for example, Costco would have a lot of service offering, right? It really take care of uh, you know almost your life. But uh, but in China, it's uh, still very much focused on the the product selling you know goods to the consumers. So I guess it, it still have a long way to go. I take full benefit of my two hundred RMB a, a, a year annual fee as well. One thing I wanted to ask you, and this is maybe a personal you know, observation, is that I also find that the products that you get at Costco are, you know, the, the, yes, they're private label, but many of them are also imported products. And as you see a very, you know, you have a very premiumized kind of middle class, but you also, because of COVID, the inability to travel abroad to buy a lot of the products that you would typically buy or bring in from your shopping festival or you know your shopping trips from from outside of the country i find that there's a lot of those types of people as well because you can get everything there 
and and most of that product is imported at, at a very reasonable price point. You know, obviously they offer a very large pack that is um, difficult to pull out of smaller size family in Shanghai to consume. But people find a way to actually split the bill and uh, but enjoy the benefits, like Ali you said, of the of the of the annual fee that you have already paid. We could easily spend the entire time talking about about traditional retail, which is really fascinating. But let's move on to e-commerce. Uh, are we seeing recovery uh, post the lockdowns? We also saw in the, the report that categories like Douyin and Kwaiso, Douyin increased in terms of FMCG sales by about 17.8% in the study. And we're seeing decreases in Taobao. So I just wanted to uh, ask you about that. Where are you seeing the changes in e-commerce? Uh, why are people buying more stuff on Douyin for our overseas listeners, you know, Douyin is Chinese TikTok, and we're seeing a increases in fast-moving consumer goods on Douyin. Uh, what's accounting for it, and where are we seeing the slowdown in Taobao? Where, is it being pulled from these from Douyin and Kwaiso? Yeah, so e-commerce in China this year also experiencing quite, of, uh, quite a bit of disruption uh, because of the lockdown and also generally because of the, the economic slowdown and, and reduction of, uh, you know, a lot of consumers' buying power. So uh, in April and May um, in Shanghai and the Yangtze Delta River region, you know, because of the lockdown, there's a lot of issues with logistics and supply chain. So e-commerce, traditional e-commerce platform have difficulties of, um, you know, shipping their product to the consumers, not as smooth as, uh, as before. And after lockdown, obviously, they, they have recovered. So definitely we saw some recovery, but not really, you know, back to the same place as, you know, they enjoyed, um, you know, back last year. Clearly, we can see all all the, the numbers this year in W11, actually there's no number. Most of the company didn't really reveal any numbers for their W11. Well, in the past, they would shout out uh, during the, throughout the singles day, you know, every hour, they will actually tell you, you know, what, what, what milestone they have uh, hit. So this year, it was really, really quiet for the traditional uh, e-commerce players. But like you said, you know, we saw a really, really extraordinary performance for the interest retail, like going and quite show. And, and actually, Actually, that works on a really large consumer basis because in China, you know, based on the latest statistics, already 962 million people were on those short video platforms. Okay, and based on our research, around one third, about 34 percent of those families started to buy their products. So they're not really just enjoying those um, shows, talent shows on the um, on Douyin and Kuai show. They also uh, start to purchase FMCG product online. Okay, about one third of the Chinese families, and and it has been double-digit growth every quarter. So Douyin and Kuai Show, obviously, their ambition is not about entertainment, but also commerce as well. Starting uh, a, a while back, Douyin actually also introduced their e-commerce dedicated offer. So today, actually, Douyin increasingly looks like Taobao, where actually, obviously, you can actually find a lot of products just through your entertainment experience, but also you can directly search a product. So if you clicked on the Shangchen um, tab, you can actually search a product and say, I, I want to buy a Rejoice shampoo. You can directly search the product, search the keywords, and, and they will give you the product offer. So it's more like a Taobao. So it's really moving into the space of those uh, what we call the shelf e-commerce retailer, where it almost like have a shelf. 
So it's going to be quite interesting to see how Douyin and Kuaishou play out. But generally speaking, because of large consumer base and also because of the thickness of those consumers on those apps, they spend so much time on those apps. So definitely, you know, Douyin and Kuaishou have a lot of opportunity to turn that into a commercial opportunity. Looking at the statistic over here as well, when you look at even things like live streaming on e-commerce, Douyin, I mean, it was, as you mentioned, it was primarily, you know, it was an entertainment platform. And now they account for about 33% of total live streaming e-commerce sales in China. Uh, and the other two, side note, are Taobao and, uh, and Kuaishou. So Taobao, which is Tmall's um, peer-to-peer platform, that accounts for about 37% and Douyin's at 338 that's just incredible that they've gone from nothing to accounting for about one third of China's live streaming e-commerce. And just to build on that, Jason is how you say it's shelf e-commerce. So it's more of a transactional experience or people engaging in live stream entertainment and then they're being drawn into like a retail store. What's the consumer interaction here? Yeah. So I guess with those traditional e-commerce platform, people go there with a specific purpose. So I, I go to JD.com because I want to buy something or I want to browse something, right? So they go there. Normally, they have a specific purpose. But with Douyin and Kuaishou, you don't really have a specific purpose. You go there. You, you want to have a little bit of fun, entertainment, etc. You want to watch you know, the performance of your favorite um, influencer, for instance. Uh, but obviously, it happened that favorite inferences is also actually selling something. So, you know, because of the engagement and uh, your, your confidence in the, with this inference, uh, you start to buy the product this uh, inference uh, sell to you. So that is very natural. And, and I think that that is something quite interesting because uh, because of the strong bonding that you are having with uh, the KOL and the inference, uh, you often don't really compare the price because you trust them and, and you, you buy from them. So that is quite interesting. But, but amazingly, you know, also today, um, based on our research, for Douyin and Kuaishou, the average price the, the platform offers are still relatively low compared with uh, Timo and, um, and the JD.com. And, and that basically reflects the fact that uh, today, a lot of the smaller brands are selling on Douyin and Kuaishou. The big guys... Either they just get there or they haven't really, you know, get there yet. Most of the big brands open their flagship stores in Taobao or JD, but they haven't really come to Douyin Kuaishou. So this year, particularly, I know that a lot of my clients, even a lot of the prestige brand, even Yangzhou, you know, premium liquor brands are start to operate, open their store in, in Douyin because they no longer see Douyin as a, a sort of a cheap platform that would dilute their brand image. They see this as a, a platform have a lot of engagement with the consumers today so you know it makes sense you sell where your consumers are right um, so that is um, a very interesting shift of the e-commerce strategy for a lot of our clients hey i have a follow-up on that one um, and i wonder if there's a, and this is more about digital and internet in general but you don't see that type of behavior uh, amongst international uh, platforms. So for example, I think TikTok is probably going to be the f- first kind of global 
platform with e-commerce capabilities. But typically, if you go onto, you know, if you go onto a Facebook or if you go onto an Instagram, they don't have inherent, they don't have built-in e-commerce functionality. Do you think there's a China specificity, or is there a, you know, is there a thinking, or is there some kind of an approach that Chinese platforms have that focus first primarily on? User kind of acquisition, and then they migrate into e-commerce services and make sure they monetize their users. Is there a cultural difference, or what do you think is happening there? Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of reasons. A little bit like you know, Elon Musk is talking about Twitter being another WeChat. Why should the account be another WeChat that people you know purchase a product, make all the transactions, payment, etc. I think in China, obviously, when Consumers develop high level of trust and engagement with the platform. They want to do everything on this platform. They want to do their entertainment, purchase, you know, like even banking on this platform, which is probably quite different from、uh, the Western countries, Europe and and the US. I would say, but 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 also probably also because of regulatory kind of requirement as well. Because in the past, China, in, in you know. You know, a lot of internet player have a tendency to develop the super app based on the consumer needs, but、uh, you know it could be quite difficult to get it、uh, going、um, in in the Western world because of a much tighter regulatory、um, environment. And just looking at some of the categories that you're seeing increases、uh, that reflective in your recent report, you talked about new opportunities for the next normal, and I guess that these are an outcome of of the COVID lockdowns. You talk about Uh, cure anxiety and happy indoor lifestyle. A couple of the highlights I thought was just great. Cat food is up twenty two percent, and cheese category is up thirty one percent. What are you seeing in terms of the category changes that are taking place? Are they all reflective of lockdowns?、Uh, how are people's lifestyles changing? And do you see this as a short term thing, or do you think that hopefully when the lockdown COVID Restrictions start to gradually lessen in China. Do you think that we'll get back to normal? Yeah, thanks, Bryce. I think that's a great question. I think、uh, those changes probably more reflective of、uh, a longer term trend. I would say that、uh, you know because of the change in demographics, in the lifestyle. So the growth of、um, uh, cat food or dog food. You know, in the space of、uh, human food, baby food, probably the interesting statistic in China, there are more cats and dogs than than newborn baby, and we have less and less baby, and we have more and more cats and dog, and you can raise, you know, maybe two cats and dog at one home, but if you are going to raise three children, actually, <laughs> it's you got to be really rich. So I think、uh, the the fact that cat food and, and the full you know pet care industry has been growing phenomenally over the past、uh, you know five to ten years is really reflecting partly demographic change, but also partly because you know people want to actually have a pet with them so that they can actually release their pressure and、uh, almost like treating pet as a, as a family member. Um, because there's less, less children in the family member. The growth of cheese again is really interesting because cheese was usually, usually、um, in the past it was、uh, consumed more by children as after home after school snack. Okay, so you give、uh, children some kid cheese, and and for people born in the sixties and or seventies,、um, they were not really used to cheese as、uh, a staple food. Uh, but over the past,、uh, you know, five years, I would say that、um, a couple of cheese brands they have really made an efforts to educate the consumers to bring cheese to people's life. So today, actually, cheese was more used as a more cooking ingredient、uh, rather than a, a children's snack. 
and that is quite interesting because they have developed so many different uh, exciting recipes that uh, you know no, you don't just use cheese for for pizza and other Western food, but also cheese together with the Chinese food, Chinese cooking as well. That is really interesting. That really helps to expand the usage location of a product. So that really opens more wide space uh, for the for the for the category and for the brands. So I would say that you know if a, a product are really able to move into that direction, then obviously it will generate a lot of incremental sales rather than competing in the in the kind of red ocean. Another category that went up incredibly in your report was the no sugar uh, carbonated soft drinks. Uh, category, which I think increased over 30%. Uh, I remember during the lockdown in in April and May that Coca-Cola was a, a very luxury item that was very hard to get in Shanghai and people valued it very much if they could get Coca-Cola. But despite that, it seems that the overall non-sugar CSD category has grown massively. Uh, is this a part of a health trend, or is this uh, the Genki Forest uh, phenomenon? What where are we seeing non-sugared car- carbonated soft drink beverages increase so much? Yeah, so Bryce, actually, non-sugar is not only a trend in in the carbonated soft drink, but also trend in in other beverage category as well, like like tea or you know a few other categories. So so I think that generally obviously represent that people want to enjoy their beverage, but they don't want to actually get fat. They are more health conscious uh, as well. So the total sector is enjoying uh, a really booming trend. Um, but that similar phenomenon is also happening across other uh, trends as well. So you have a lot of non-sugar, non-sugar biscuits, you know, carbon-free biscuits, kind of snacks, etc. That is happening. That generally reflecting the consumer's health trend. Yeah. A part of the report talks about online to offline, or as we call it, O to O. And I noticed that Kantar World Panel defines O to O in three categories. You call it community group buy aggregator and warehouse. Could you talk about how you define those experiences and more importantly, what changes have we seen recently in the recent quarterly report that you'd like to like to highlight? So O2O generally, we, we define O2O as, you know, consumer order the product uh, online through their mobile phone, but either they get a product delivered to their home office or actually collect a product in store. So the three general types you just mentioned, the community group buy works very much on a kind of WeChat um, group environment where you know, normally there is a, a captain of the community, he being the middleman between the suppliers and the buyers, and he will actually place the product in the WeChat group. And, and if you are interested in the product, you make an order and you can collect a product uh, um, in, in, a, in a smaller store nearby. Uh, normally, you know, five or ten minutes work from your home. So that is community group buy. But now you also have a model to actually get that uh, product experience totally online by delivering the product to your home rather than go into the store. Aggregators are those um, kind of marketplace type of uh, platforms. So the, the like of Jingdong Daojia, like of Erlema, Meituan, etc. So they are big platform where all the brands, all the restaurants, all the retailers were listed on their platform. So you can actually select the product you want um, and, and get those uh, um, products uh, shipped from um, the brick and mortar store to your, to your home. 
normally in 30 minutes to one hour. Again, really, really fast, super convenient. And, and the last one, warehouse, uh, are what do we call a more like a vertical, fresh food verticals. So in Shanghai, you know, a lot of people are spending a lot of time on Ding Dong Mai Cai, for instance, which is a very, very interesting fresh food verticals. So they are only very much focused on fresh food. They deliver the product. They have a lot of smaller warehouses in the, throughout the city. So instead of shipping the product from a central warehouse, they get a product, all the veg, food and vegetable delivered from the smaller dark room kind of warehouse to a home within, you know, 20 or 30 minutes um, at its best. But of course, during COVID lockdown, it will take sometimes a day. Um, you know, that is a very interesting one. And the representative is Ding Dong Dao Jia. But there's another player, uh, Miss Fresh, which almost went bankrupt, uh, you know, a few months ago. So that is also a, a business model that is really struggling in terms of its, uh, uh, you know, profit generation uh, for their shareholders. We saw a huge increase from the two quarters in terms of community group buy. Now, we know that in a lot of markets that was due to obviously COVID lockdown restrictions and people getting together in apartment blocks and buying things together. Do you think that this will continue post uh, lockdowns that people have gotten the habit of buying things together as a result of the lockdown uh, regulations and they'll continue to group buy on a regular basis? Yeah, community group buy is a really interesting business model. To some extent, it aggregates all the consumer demand and, and then translate that consumer demand directly to the supply side. And because often it doesn't require a kind of like a huge infrastructure building, as well as, you know, the, the investment you need to uh, make to buy the traffic or buy the liang. So in, to some extent, it is a quite uh, interesting business model to get consumers the, the best value for money offer that they can get. And, and throughout the lockdown, and, and even in quarter three, we continue to see the growth of uh, the big community group buy platform, uh, like Dodo Mai Cai, Meituan Mai Cai, etc. They have been growing quite well. Of course, you know, when they talk about Mai Cai, they don't really just sell vegetables. They also sell other, you know, staple items. Normally, basic product, you know, not really fancy, not expensive, but, you know, people will need those products on a daily basis. And the community group buy, you know, you don't really find it very often in, in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai, you know, <laughs> apart from the lockdown time that people start to experience uh, community group buy. But in the lower tier city, especially lower tier city in central China, western China, they are still very strong. Obviously, the business model has experiencing some turbulences um, because of the government uh, crackdown on relentless um, subsidies of the product. But now it is entering a healthy developing stage by more focusing on efficiency, supply chain, and also, you know, like orders of competition. So I guess uh, um, the model is quite interesting. A lot of our clients are looking into this model to think about how they can actually feature their brands more in those um, community group buy kind of like contest so that consumer can buy their product at, at a large quantity um, and also they are able to actually get to the consumers in the lower tier cities. Is there, there's obviously a price benefit and maybe this is a question to everyone in the group but there's a price benefit that you get from purchasing products in groups or in bulk. Have you seen or have you heard from clients talking about brand and brand erosion as a result of 
selling product at discount? Yeah, I, I think that's probably something that people would worry in the in the in the first instance that they they, they kind of worry that consumer will associate. Um, Community buy with with uh, actually you know low value cheap that kind of um, image. But I would say that you know people are segmented based on different groups. So during the Shanghai lockdown, actually there are some groups selling pretty upmarket product <laughs> uh, to the to the to the group consumers. So it really depends on the group you are in. And it depends on how you operate the group. I know that uh, you know after lockdown there are also some interesting you know like uh, brand models that using community group buy as a way to sell more premium product, not necessarily prestige product, but at least a premium product offer at a good price. So you know everybody, regardless how much you earn, you like product, a good product with a good price. I think that is a human nature, and that's where. Community group buy can still play um, in the in the in the retail space. So, this podcast will be released in early December. So now that we're at the end of the year, Jason, you know what that means. We need to know what your predictions are for 2023. Are let's go with maybe three retail predictions for China uh, retail in 2023. What are they, Jason? That that's get me nervous. Okay, seems like I have a crystal ball in front of me that I can get into. So I would say probably in terms of the retail space, I would say probably definitely twenty twenty three will be better than twenty twenty two. The market will rebound because uh, the the government are have just introduced policies to ease the you know the zero covid kind of control and uh, so i would imagine that things are gradually open up and you know, people are able to travel and going back to the you know social interaction um, occasions which are really important to, you know for a lot of the product categories so i think the you know market will re- rebound just like you know 2021 was much better uh, than 2020 so I would say that that is probably my first prediction. That obviously offers a lot of opportunities and recovery opportunity for a lot of our clients. Um, I would say that the second point is really about the kind of the, the rebalance be- between offline and online trade. So over the past uh, you know couple of years, number of years, we, we always saw that you know online channel has been growing phenomenally at expense of uh, offline trade. But I would say that things were coming to a a kind of balance where offline trade today, they are very much digitalized. They are able to compete um, in their own right uh, with online trade, while online trade is no longer growing that much, um, as consumers still want offline space, right? they, they like so much to go into the store and, and touch and feel the product. And, and we are seeing a great performance for some of the brick and mortar retailers because they are you know, fully digitalized. So I would say that in the future, it's really about digital commerce rather about purely e-commerce because all the commerce can be digital commerce. And once you are digitalized, you get more efficient, get more convenience to the consumers, you are able to actually find growth opportunities. Okay. Uh, the third point I want to talk about is obviously we're probably going to see a bit more uh, mergers and acquisition and expansion of the uh, retail trade uh, as well. Uh, China retail trade, unlike the other Western countries, they are extremely fragmented. 
you know, the, the big players only accounted for 30-40% market share, unlike, you know, big players in the UK, they account for 70-80% of market share. Uh, so it is really, really uh, interesting to see that, you know, some of the players, once backed up by capital again, by, by the investment again, they are able to expand. And we are already uh, seeing that the, the big players, like regional players, like Jia Jia Yue Spa, they move out of Shandong province, moving into Hebei, moving into Jiangsu and nearby provinces to open their stores. Uh, Meijia, which is actually the number one convenience store, moving out of Guangdong and and into different uh, you know nearby provinces. They are they are almost everywhere now. They are the biggest chain, even overtaking the big uh, um, you know petrol station convenience store. So I would say that definitely the expansion either in the form of uh, merchants acquisition, but also in the form of maybe franchise will grow again, you know, once they have the money, uh, so that, uh, you know, we are, we're going to see a more consolidation in the retail space uh, in China. And I know you've been in the marketing research business your entire career. We get a lot of young people that listen to the show. For those that are interested in breaking ground into the marketing research business, what tips could you provide to them? What would help them in terms of helping them find a full-time job? Marketing research is sometimes often overlooked. What do you see as the magic of being in, in your industry? And for those that would be interested, what, what do they need to do to break in? Yeah, thank you, Bryce. I think that's a great question. And, and I would say that you know, market research today is obviously very, very different from market research when you and me started you know, back 20 or 30 years ago. Um, it, it's, it's really, really amazing that you know, if young people can get out of school and get into market research industry, they, they work obviously with a lot of data, but they, have to, they will be able to develop the ability to turn data into information, into insights, into decision-making, uh, which is really, really amazing. I think that is uh, you know, something that, you, and, and of course, throughout the journey, you are able to actually work with uh, different disciplines of um, you know, marketing, uh, with media, with trade, with uh, advertising, with supply chain, R&D, etc., to understand the issue across the different uh, disciplines of discipline. And, and, and I would say that uh, the second point is really about the transferable skills that you, can, you are able to learn in the market research industry not just about analytics, but also about communication, you know, um, client engagement, account management, all the sort of things, strategic planning, all the sorts of things that you can actually develop. You know, even if you are not really, you know, working in the marketing research industry forever, you will later move on to another industry, you are able to actually bring those transferable skills to your new jobs. But more importantly, I think from a more like a company purpose point of view, uh, in Kanta, we always say that we understand people and, and inspire growth. And it's amazing to actually really think about uh, you know, data, not just as data, but also people's life. You know, while we are studying people, what products they purchase, it's, you have really, you know, looking into people's life, understand how people live across different city tiers and different regions. That is really, really interesting. And you're able to actually turn that information to help the client to develop better product for those consumers. And I would say that personally, I found this is a really amazing journey uh, for, for myself and hopefully for many of the young graduates today, you know, facing a career decision. That's awesome, Jason. 
Uh, Ali, are we ready for the A-B test? Yes, we are. We're ready for the A-B test. So the way this works, Jason, is that I'll throw two words, two phrases, two sentences at you, and whatever comes first to mind, just choose either of the two options in front of you. Sam's Club or Costco? Uh, Costco, definitely. Starbucks or Haiti? Uh, for me, Starbucks, uh, it's more traditional. It's more male. <laughs> <laughs> I love that insight. It's more traditional and it's more male. I guess you don't like the cheese in your tea. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I, and all the, all the fruits and the cheese. I think in the tea, it's, um, yeah. But, you know, people love it. So one thing I wanted to say earlier, by the way, you know, for everyone that's really interested in, in, in you know, that's more conscious about the volume of sugar that they eat, the options or sugar-based options and beverages are also exploding. So on the one hand, you have, you know, products like Haiti, which is like full fat, full sugar, loaded with all kinds of delicious things, M&Ms and everything. And then on the other hand, you know, you need to have your diet Coke or you need to have your diet beverage to compensate for, you know, the additional calories that you've consumed and all this rich flavorful food. Anyway, quantitative or qualitative? Quantitative for what and, and qualitative for why? So both, yeah. Douyin or Kwai Shou? Uh, Douyin, yeah, definitely Douyin for me. I don't really have Kwai Shou installed on my phone. Premiumization or value orientation? Uh, I would say a value-based premiumization um, because you can premiumize uh, your offer, but also you need to make sure that you are still providing consumer good value. All right, in-home or out-of-home? Uh, out-of-home. Yeah, definitely. I think after spending so much time in-home, I really want to go out-of-home. <laughs> yeah. um, the next one hurts me. I'm going to ask anyway, and I know the answer. Is it WPP or Bain Capital? Uh, I would say I like WPP for its diversity and um, you know, Bain Capital probably for its discipline. So I hope I'm being politically correct. <laughs> they are both shareholders of Kanta. Great answer. Uh, dogs or cats? Uh, dogs. This is one that I picked up from the show. Chou tofu or blue cheese? Uh, chou tofu, definitely. I, I still <laughs> learning my way around blue cheese. That's what I say as well. Jason, fabulous episode. Thank you very much for, for joining us today and providing all your insights. We'll put some links into the show notes for all the information, uh, the, the public information you've released on the report to our listeners. Thanks, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both to have me. And thank everyone for joining us on on today's episode. Join us in two weeks for another exciting show. And to all the listeners, until then, have a great day.